Hi everyone, I'm Pankaj Mishra and you are listening to the Outliers podcast. It's a podcast, a series of conversations with outliers. Today I'm really thrilled to be having this conversation with uh, someone I have watched for years and I believe uh, he's an outlier for many reasons. Uh, I am with Ajit Isaac. He is the founder CEO of QuestCorp and he has had an amazing journey over decades and uh, you know it's a privilege to sh- you know capture his story and share with you all. So Ajit, welcome to this podcast. Thank you Pankaj. Happy to be here. Ajit, uh, let's start from the start, you know. Can you give us a sense of growing up, uh, you know, early, early life and uh, Talk about some of the things you believe uh, you picked while growing up, which shaped who you are today. Okay, so so I was born into a middle-class family in, in Chennai. My father was a first-generation immigrant from Kerala, did his graduation from Madras Christian College. My mother was a housewife, and uh, I had a younger sister. Uh, we lived in a place called Ananagar in Chennai, and uh, have been there all my life through my school and college growing up in Chennai. Uh, my father, like many of his generation, was uh, a one-company man. He had one company, one boss, one car, one wife, one house all his life. You know, he, there was nothing literally that changed uh, across the many years. And there was consistency and a solidity about uh, everything that he did. Uh, and he shaped a lot of my thinking. He worked uh, in the then company called Dunlop, which is a tire manufacturing company. He started off uh, as a junior level officer and then grew into becoming a a middle rung management professional inside uh, Dunlop before he retired from the company towards 1990 or so. And just about the time when he was retiring was when I was uh, finishing my graduation and I took a job uh, as... uh, my first job was actually in Bombay as a management trainee at Godrich and Boys in Vikroli. And I worked there for a bit and then I joined the SR group where I spent another six to seven years of my very formative years in working life. I got to see actually two contrasting companies work. You know, one company that was uh, family uh, owned but uh, steeped in its culture, in its tradition and uh, uh, with a significant contribution to society and the community around which it lived. The second one was a very fast-growing, again, a family-run organization in primarily infrastructure-related areas, uh, seizing opportunities in the newly liberalized economy of India and uh, Mm -hmm. growing without the shackles of uh, old conventional thinking. So two different types. And uh, through this process, I saw also how decisions were made, how promoters interacted with their people, uh, what led their decision-making process, and, uh, you know, primarily about uh, what drove them to doing the things that went into building organizations. So that's sort of, uh, uh, that's an insight into where I grew up from and my early part of my professional career, Pankaj. You know, this is fascinating. Uh, I think because of the kind of experience you have had over years, Ajit, before you became an entrepreneur, what went behind it? What were some of the building blocks and what were some of the lessons, Ajit, that you brought from all your career, you know, both good and bad, to start building? And how was it for you early? 
So the first thing is that uh, in my family, in my dad's side, there was not a single entrepreneur across three generations. They were either in the earlier generation, they were either agriculturists or uh, uh, they were service oriented people in the sense they studied something and they became, uh, you know, a lecturer, a doctor or uh, uh, somebody who served society in some way. But nobody mm-hmm. who had uh, risk taking ability. So that was really not the DNA of our family. And there was just one uncle of mine who had built a business, but who retired fairly early with that. And then, you know, I saw him at close quarters, how he built it, the difficulties he faced in this. And also uh, the the lack of institutional support to entrepreneurs in India, uh, like banking systems, uh, availability of information about projects, and uh, uh, just the gut level risk-taking ability that actually drove uh, entrepreneurs to succeed. So it didn't seem actually like one of those... Uh, one of those favorable options to proceed with uh, very early in my life. But I always wanted to, uh, I always wanted to do something in which uh, I had the ability to shape it, ability to uh, take it in a certain direction and to create an impact that, uh, you know, that I wanted to intend out of it. So uh, the jobs that I did and uh, the, you know, the uh, attributes of life that I look for, were always uh, sort of in this direction. And uh, uh, halfway through work life, I got to do uh, a course at the Leeds University as a Chevening Scholar. In uh, mm-hmm. was that I think it was the year 1996-97. So actually, T.B. Narendran, who is the current uh, Managing Director of, uh, of Tata Steel, uh, then Adnan Ahmed of, uh, of Clarion Chemicals, then a few others who who are now senior managers were part of the twelve that we that we went to school with, and uh, mm-hmm. that turned out to be a fascinating uh, period of six months to eight months that we spent in the UK and Europe uh, studying there, because you know I'd spent all of my life uh, prior to that going to academic institutions and and about eight years prior to this course uh, working my early years in Indian organizations, so I could see an opening uh, uh, of the economy that is happening in India. And I could retrofit, therefore, the uh, ability to create organizations that I saw outside India into a newly opening and liberalized system that was coming into India and realized that there was significant opportunity. So by 2000 or so, I knew that, uh, you know, uh, uh, corporate life had uh, had taught me a lot. And maybe it's about time that I can use some of it to see if I can um, I can do something of my own. And that's when I think also, fortunately, uh, the private equity uh, funds were opening shop in India. There was capital available uh, for uh, entrepreneurs like me who had nothing to bring to the table except an idea and some energy. And uh, they would fund it and uh, they would back you and they, they would they would trust you to build this organization. So, it, you know, late uh, 90s, early 2000 was when the first bunch of uh, private equity funds came. Uh, I went and met two of them. Both of them agreed to put money into what was an idea then to build a human resources company and then you know uh, things moved from one to another and uh, I found myself uh, 20 years later heading a company with about 400,000 people so that's sort of the sequence of things that went into uh, building quests. Wow really amazing. Ajit if, if, if I can again ask you a question about why this particular sector I know you've been uh, you know a professional in the human resources field, but why did you pick to build, you know, 
a company, an enterprise in this space? Uh, any reasons in particular? So, uh, very early in life, growing up at home, I had realized the importance of relationships, of developing uh, uh, not so superficial, but you know, sort of uh, very deep relationships with people. Even if you don't meet them often, but spend quality time, talk to them about the things that interest them, and uh, you know, remember these people for some things that they've told you. And this, I think, has uh, worked for me all my life, where I'm able to connect with people. And to you know, uh, to identify what works for some people, what doesn't work for some people. One was the second one that I, you know, picked up early on in life uh, through my dad. Primarily was the need to not have any obligations or debt in life. You know, just to just to be independent, so to say, of uh, other influences in decision making. I think these two have been very important to me. And over life, when I uh, grew as a human resource professional, uh, both of this shaped the way I thought about uh, what I should do in the management uh, construct of a company and handling people and dealing with their issues came sort of naturally to me. So, you know, as a human resource professional, I realized that uh, finding people, uh, positioning them for success and architecting organization design that helped companies achieve their business goals was something that I could uh, work with. And something that I enjoyed doing. And usually, you know, if uh, there is something that you enjoy doing, whether it's bartending, whether it's agriculture, whether it is organization design, whether it is marketing, sales, or finance, if you enjoy doing something, you know, you end up you end up enjoying you end up doing well what you what you enjoy doing. So, over time, uh, I found myself recruiting for a number of companies which uh, uh, which had new projects coming up and which were building large scale organizations. One was the Vedanta Group in early two thousand. Uh, I went with Mr. Agarwal, in fact, to Atlanta to set up uh, an optic fiber cable plant in uh, Georgia, Atlanta. One of the first mm-hmm. international projects, I worked with them on site for a period of, of about, let's say, six months or so, uh, hiring an entire team of people to uh, set up a manufacturing you know, optic fiber cable plant. And that's when I realized that you don't have to hire everybody on a full-time basis. You can hire also uh, on a temp basis. There were companies then like Adeco, Randstad, Volt, uh, Manpower, admin staff, etc., who gave you the people from their payroll, and you could use them the way they, that you wanted or prescribed in your uh, purchase order to them on your shop floor. So um, that struck me as a business that we could do in India, but labor laws in India were not exactly entirely built out for uh, to enable such a business. But yeah. it said that I studied the contracts there. Uh, worked with the uh, uh, worked with Vedanta to set up their project in uh, Georgia, and then um, came back to India because 9/11 struck in September. Mm-hmm. So we came back immediately back to India, and then I uh, set out to build a temping business in India. So in the first year, we got one or two projects from companies that were in the telecom space. So this was the year 2001. I think our first contract was from Airtel, and then we went on to build. Uh, a large temping business by 2004, we had almost 40,000 people, and that's when we sold to Adeco. But the one thing I want to point out here is that uh, uh, the companies that took temping as an option in those days were the companies mm-hmm. that were new to the Indian economic firmament, you know, so to say, that was uh, telecom, banking and finance, retail, IT organizations. Uh, these are organizations that did not belong to the legacy 
uh, economic system of India, which is manufacturing, engineering, heavy, heavy engineering, some fast-moving consumer goods or license-related projects. So the newer companies that came wanted to build scale fast, uh, build uh, uh, organizations that were able to, uh, to supply the, uh, the demand coming from an aspiring middle class and therefore needed uh, to quickly build scale and they outsourced large part of their human resource activity. So that's how we built uh, a HR services coming, a company coming out of uh, the liberalization process. Ajit, one of the things about, you were talking about construct of an organization, you know. Now, can you talk a little bit about setting the culture or, or the DNA of the company? Because you are now talking about, for example, 400,000 uh, people. That's quite a lot. So can you talk about the, setting the DNA itself and managing this complexity, keeping it intact? What are the values and how do you cope with complexity and scale as you grow? So, you know, Quest, we built it from a small apartment uh, of maybe 1,500 square feet, three rooms, you know, and about 15, 20 people. And today it is the fourth largest staffing company in the world. It's the 17th largest private sector employer. When we started the company in those days, culture was very important to us. So there are three, four things that were, you know, essential uh, ingredients of our story, so to say, from then. One was culture. Second one was uh, speed and agility in operations. Uh, third one was customer centricity. And the fourth one was employee engagement. You know, these were the four or five things that, uh, and all of this adds up finally. And if you ha- get all of this right, you get uh, cash flows, you get return on equity. I mean, all of this is finally derivative of the things of the earlier four things that I said. Why I said this right now is because uh, if you if you go back in time and look at us from the time from, you know, from uh, 2007 to now, uh, these three or four things have always remained a constant. Culture. Culture is that one thing that I think uh, settles everything down finally. You know, it uh, it uh, establishes the way people relate and talk to each other. It establishes the type of respect and, uh, you know, um, the hierarchy, in the hierarchy of things where a customer stands in, uh, in the issues that you put on a to-do list uh, every morning. Uh, it also settles... Uh, the way you set up an office, the, the way you look at contracts, and the type of people you hire. All of this is very, very important in a, in a growing system. Uh, the second aspect is uh, speed. Very often, companies mistake uh, speed for, uh, you know, for uh, ability to get across a finishing line. Sometimes it's just not raw speed that counts, but uh, speed that is uh, intelligent enough to get the right projects across uh, finishing line. So, uh, when we say speed, it's also what you choose to run for and what goals you set your, for yourself and the speed through which you take it through to them. And uh, uh, lastly, people. We've been fortunate that a large number of our management team here today are actually people who worked with me either in my first entrepreneurial venture or even here right from the founding stage of the company. Uh, longevity of people uh, eases out the dynamics and relationships between individuals. Longevity also creates... Uh, certain deep roots that prevent you from taking positions that are uh, uh, that will harm either you know the company or or its value systems because you both created the value system together so uh, long standing people deep rooted culture uh, an approach to business that includes uh, speed and agility more than just raw speed uh, are let's say necessary ingredients in building uh, uh, a successful company and i think this has been uh, the cornerstone of the company right through from when we started to right to where we are today.
the one of the things that uh, you know fascinates me you talking about culture uh, when it is a temp environment how do you ensure that the culture is same for everyone uh, you know at least it, it's difficult to imagine from outside uh, about how do you keep that culture intact when uh, you know because organizations talk about full time employees they talk about you know control environment where they seed the culture and, and protect it so what is it like you know being the custodian of culture in in this kind of env- environment where so many temp uh, staff is around you so as a founder or as an uh, or as a person who's you know was involved with uh, setting up the team to create this organization i think your salary primarily comes to ensuring that this culture stays in the slot that it should it should stay and it permeates across, right across the company uh, a lot of the other subsets of abilities that you need into an organization can be brought in but culture is something that you have to create and it's a founder led thing usually so culture usually again comes out from the founding principles the purpose and the sort of uh, uh, the 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 you know the main principles around which you run an organization uh some of them for example uh, i can tell you in quest things like we will we have a fair and friendly acquisition process we only look at uh, uh, mnda if it's a fair and friendly uh, you know acquisition we won't look at a uh, we won't look at a hostile process at all in an mnda situation the second thing is that we will never have debt uh, you know overarching debt in our company is greater than let's say two times ebitda or so so we don't want to be over leveraged we want to be properly financed third is that we'll never bet our house on any one single project we like to uh, we like to uh, you know uh, take small bite sized things that we we'll do for example we'll never go and buy another company that's the same size of quest to double ourselves you know something of that type uh, then the next one is that uh, we want uh, while we like to set the pace etc we want also uh, a balance for people and their personal life so we want to create an environment and a culture where people enjoy what they're doing and they also get time to do what uh, they would similarly like to do with their families uh, and the last thing is that we look for shareholders uh, return on equity is important to us we look at a 20% return on equity uh, we therefore we we would like to take those level of risks that will help us to get to that but measure it by some of the other principles around which we run this business so uh, some of this these principles help create the culture we've got if you don't have any of these principles it's difficult just to you know put in a culture and say this is our culture because you're not measuring it against some of the yardstick which you would call is your uh, template for you know for your company so that's how i think we put the uh, culture paradigm down and that's i think been one of the biggest uh, uh, biggest successes at quest just as an anecdote you know when i was meeting uh, fairfax for the first time in 2012 in november mm-hmm. 2012 that's almost now 8 years ago and one of the first things that prem told me about fairfax when i was meeting him was about the culture and about its principles strangely we had a very solid overlap between what we said was our principles and what was fairfax and that's when i also realized that uh, sometimes it's serendipity that leads you to situations and people and events where you know there is such a uh, uh, alignment between how you want something to be and how they are also approaching issues in life other thing ajit is being an entrepreneur or a founder uh, who is built uh, an enterprise at this scale yeah have there been uh, dilemmas have there been temptations because we, you know we all hear from different entrepreneurs about 
all these dilemmas that occur on a daily basis and how do they deal with it right so how how what are your first principles uh, when it comes to things like uh, you know i don't integrity or some of those dilemmas that you face as a founder can you talk a little bit about it with some examples uh, so it becomes uh, relatable so uh, this is a great question because i think uh, this is sometimes an unexplored part of uh, an entrepreneur's life what are the sort of dilemmas that you face i think the one of the first dilemmas that an entrepreneur uh, faces is uh, the dilemma of growth versus consolidation there are many many stages of 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 a, of a journey in an enterprise when you are you have the ability to to chase a new idea to build a new team and to grow a new business thinking that that's the next big thing for the company versus the dilemma of actually not doing it but consolidating and building something uh, larger getting more market share and uh, driving maybe larger margins in a specific business so this is a very operational issue and it's not a it's not a you know sexy thing but this is i think a classic dilemma that many managers many founders face in their life whether should i should i chase some growth or should i you know consolidate and build a stronger business and many times i think uh, people have faltered by taking the first option of growth versus consolidation i think a balance here is necessary and sometimes only history proves which decision is right or wrong but i would uh, favor uh, a, a more conservative approach towards a more consolidation and looking and restricting yourself to maybe you know two three big ideas in a year rather than chasing every one that comes the second one is actually on integrity uh, you know in india one of the issues that we've got is about uh, how the legal system is constructed uh, one issue with the legal system is that it's uh, uh, the way it is uh, drafted and the way it is uh, built is sometimes uh, anachronistic to the actual requirements of, of of a situation you take the contract labor regulation abolition act that act that is passed maybe 30 40 years ago is anachronistic even in its title you can't regulate and abolish at the same time which is what its title says so yeah. uh, there has always been an ability of indian entrepreneurs to find arbitrage in a, a law in a compliance system or a regulatory attribute where some profiteering is possible and they take that arbitrage create a business out of it but when the law is changed the arbitrage is gone and the business model collapses so that is a uh, that's it that is a historical dilemma i think many entrepreneurs have chased uh, <laughs> you know whether i should really go after this opportunity that's based on let's say a, a regulatory arbitrage or not the second the second aspect related to this is uh, recourse to law to settle contracts and to you know to to gain what is your due share in a contract sometimes is suspect in india because sometimes courts take extraordinarily long time to hear your case and to pass a judgment and even if it does, does so the process of appeal and final um, uh, final delivery of it of a uh, of uh, judgment in this in this case is maybe you know 10 20 years by the time you know it's your next generation that's inheriting the business so there's always the dilemma of whether you should uh, Uh, use extra constitutional means to settle a situation and finally it's also in uh, in government contracts uh, if you have a portion of your business that you're doing with government or related agencies uh, there's uh, uh, unfortunately the need to to unfortunately the need to uh, 
um, to, uh, as they say, work the system to see how best you can get your project done. It's a, you know, it's a, um, it's public, uh, it's, it's public, it's in the public domain, so to say that uh, many companies today don't do government projects because of the need to address such issues. At Quest also now we've withdrawn from government projects. Um, that's always uh, one dilemma that companies face. The government finally has the largest check signing ability and therefore they have some of the largest markets to be addressed in many areas. But uh, if you cannot work the system, you you know it's, it's a difficult opportunity segment that you can pursue and that's a dilemma that you'll have to walk away from. So, uh, and an opportunity that you can never really exploit. So these are these are some of the areas that you that you've typically had uh, that you typically had uh, you know uh, difficulties as an entrepreneur. I want to raise one last one here. Um, sure. You know the female workforce participation in India is only twenty six percent. You know, yeah. it's a very very low number. Less than one fourth of of women in India uh, uh, qualified and able to work are actually working. So even when you're building management teams and uh, and workforces, uh, very often uh, companies end up looking like a band of boys. Yeah, because you know you're just hiring people that uh, come to you most naturally, and by and by uh, the natural flow of things, there's more people approaching you for more men that's approaching you for a job than women. So uh, one of the things that we've decided at Quest is now to ensure that at least twenty percent of our management team, at least twenty percent, comes from. Uh, comes from, uh, you know, from diversity. And with that, hopefully we will grow a larger workforce uh, where a, a significant part of our senior management actually comes through through diversity. And this is actually uh, a dilemma that uh, companies have faced over life, over time, about how do we get more diversity into our workplace. And unless we put a program around this, a project around this and a target, I don't think we'll, we'll, be, we'll be able to cross the, um, you know, the Rubicon. Absolutely. Ajit, what also we have noticed it at times, some of these programs end up being a women's day tokenism, right? Yeah. Now, how do you sustain these programs as core part of your culture? How do you keep it alive and make it so ingrained in the process that it doesn't matter who the leader is, but it goes on? So uh, one of the things I've realized over the last 20 years in running a company is that unless you incentivize behavior, uh, people don't naturally change unless, of course, it's a religion or let's say, you know, uh, you, there's a gratification that comes from sports or something like that, you know. But in work life, unless you actually incentivize uh, changes in behavior, large-scale changes don't happen. So you have to then um, make sure that people get something for ensuring that there's more female participation. You have to ensure that the measuring uh, measuring methods of that performance in a company also includes how many senior leaders they've hired, how many senior leaders have been successful uh, in terms of diversity, and how many of these, uh, 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 how many of the first level managers have gone down to implement diversity programs. So, with that sort of measurement system coming in, I think uh, the ability to ability to institutionalize these changes is greater. But otherwise, as you rightly said, it remains the tokenism where. You know, there is uh, uh, SMS messages being sent, WhatsApp ex exchanged, uh, some banner being put up, and then an evening social. And after that, we we'll measure it at the end of the year. The numbers haven't changed. <laughs> Very true. Uh, Ajit, one of the things I, I was thinking when you were talking about culture uh, and the entrepreneurial dilemmas is 
you know, all of us have that litmus test, you know, like I remember reading this book uh, in school wherein there were a few lines about how uh, Gandhi, uh, you know, lines from Gandhi about, you know, before you do anything, think of the poorest person, you know, the face of the poorest person and think if it will benefit him or her. Now, for you in your career, I'm sure it would have evolved over a period of time. What is that decision-making framework? What, how do you know what to do and or what not to do? Is there something driving those decisions for you? So that's a great question, you know. And uh, I, I really, as a as a method of as a filter to decision making or as a litmus test, I really never had one for a long time. Uh, in the sense, I would just go with the flow and take the decisions and move on. But I, as the organization started evolving and developing, as our stakes became larger, as it grew from becoming a 10 crore company into a 1,000 crore company into a 10,000 crore company, the impact level of decisions grew. And uh, I've been confronted with choices about what to do, what not to do, and what's the right thing to do in many situations. Uh, very often when this happens to me, the way I resolve this, and it's very simple for me now to resolve it, is to think what would my dad have done in this situation. It, it, that's, a, that's a test that I apply. And, and it, it takes me usually less than 10 seconds to know what my dad would have done because... He was razor. He was a straight shooter. He was completely, you know, uh, razor sharp in in terms of his judgments about what what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do. Any situation you throw at me and ask what would my dad have done is very clear in my head. So uh, that I and I and I used to trust his judgment about many things. So uh, very often in life today, uh, when I'm confronted with the situation, of what to do or what not to do, uh, and if I have a doubt, um, which is by you know by a significant measure. And I'm undecided about what is the right thing. I would ask myself a question: What would my dad have done? And that I think moves the needle. That that's such a uh, great thing to have, Ajit, because I think all of us admire some people in our lives or are inspired by them. If only we would put them in in that you know place when we are making decisions, things would be so simple. Yeah, and I've been a little fortunate in these things also. So when people ask me, you know. What's been the one single factor that uh, you know you, you made all these acquisitions? How is it that you know you got them all right, or large part of them, large number of them right? You know, I say you can't underestimate the element of luck in your life. You know, luck plays such a significant role to an entrepreneur. You were just there at some place at the right time, doing the right thing. Once, in fact, when a banker asked me what is the reason for your luck, I told him, I think God's a mallu. You know. <laughs> I just have a way of reaching out to him because I think he understands my language. So, uh, so you know, you you develop various constructs for yourself to to rationalize why you get this much luck in your life. And coming back to luck, you know, uh, I think I'm also very lucky that I got to see and and examine two three people at very close quarters for different reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. One was uh, Shashi Rea of the SR Group. You know, uh, of course, uh, things have changed a lot for them now. Uh, over the years, but uh, in the 90s, mid-90s, when I worked with them, they were simultaneously building a steel plant, a power plant, a refinery, and India's then largest telecom network in Delhi, apart from already having the largest fleet, private sector fleet of ships. So, you know, there was no other company attempting so much in such a short span of time. Uh, the steel plant, they already had a hot bucket iron plant, 1.5 million tons per annum. Uh, the largest single location HBI plant. They were building then a 2 million ton steel plant, again, which was then the size of the Tisco steel plant at Jamshedpur. They had, uh, you know, six US Max tankers, all, uh, you know, state-of-the-art vessels. 
perhaps then the largest Suez Max fleet in the world. They were then building a 9 to 12 million ton per annum refinery at Badinar. All large projects. And Delhi, of course, was the largest subscriber base for a telecom circle in th- those days, you know, of a few million people. So all of this happening simultaneously. He had the, he had the uh, you know, they were invert rate risk takers. They had the ability to see an opportunity, grasp it quickly, raise the finances, motivate people, put a project team, execute and get it all rolled out. Um, uh, very fortunate to see that much entrepreneurial energy in a man in one lifetime having done so much. And after that, I got to see how Deepak Parekh works. Deepak Parekh is perhaps uh, India's number one corporate citizen today. You know, the, he's built from the HDFC stable, HDFC Limited, HDFC Bank, HDFC General Insurance, HDFC Life, um, you know, the mutual fund. And more than anything else, he's contributed to nation building by being the man who uh, resolved so many of the crises that India uh, uh, habitually got into at many stages, be it Satya, UTI, Discoms, etc. You know? And he used to resolve each one of them. And he, he had such a problem-solving ability. He built such a large network of friends. He was accepted by almost anybody who, who met him or any room that he walked into. He was always the tallest leader in the room. His voice was always... Uh, waited on with bated breath to be heard and his uh, opinion and his uh, what he said com- uh, commanded such a, a uh, such an impossibly amount impossible amount of weight i got to see him and finally then i got to see prem Batsa, you know over the last eight years uh, now known as uh, you know the uh, uh, warren buffet of canada terrific uh, investor, I mean, having gone with $10 in his pocket to create now an organization that has $70 billion of assets under management is a fantastic story, you know, and uh, his company is almost like that. Is what Tata's are to India, they're almost the same to Canada today, and so much respect and uh, a common thread between uh, Deepak and uh, uh, Prem has been the integrity with which they ran their companies. Integrity is a zero in one thing, you know, either you have it or you don't. It's You seldom uh, meet uh, and uh, you know, build relationships with people who's, who you think have great integrity, but something is not right. And these two gentlemen are, uh, you know, completely gold standard. So you know, it's just luck that I got to meet with such people, and they have such rub off ability. You know, and uh, you know, I just absorbed some of the things that uh, I saw in these in these three people, and I think all of this contributes to also make, making the mental makeup in your mind. You know, of building an organization, what business you want to be in. Who do you want to relate to? What type of risk to take? And how do you build a shareholder base? You know, these kind of things. Yeah, very well said, Ajit. Ajit, long career, multiple entrepreneurial ventures. I'm sure there would have been things that didn't work or there would have been moments. I mean, I don't wish it uh, when you felt like, you know, throwing the tile in. So if you were to look back at things that didn't work for you or that were abject failures, what did you learn from them? And it will help if you can illustrate with example. So that's a great uh, question. You know, I think uh, one part of entrepreneurial journey is all this, what you've talked about, people, culture, speed, risk-taking ability, uh, luck and all that. And the other side is how do you react to failures? What do you learn from them? And how do you, uh, how do you let that impact real life? And I think that uh, is as significant as everything else, as we said. Um, We've been an entrepreneurial company that uh, looked at M&A in a big way. So we've been acquisitive by nature. About one third of our growth has come through acquisitions. So we've done about 20, 23 acquisitions over time. 
when you do so many acquisitions, I think you should be prepared for failure in some of them. Some of them just don't out, don't turn out to be the way you know you planned it out to be. It's, it's the order of nature, and you have to accept it. Let me give you one or two examples. Uh, we were in the engineering uh, operations and maintenance space, and we're getting in partially into some engineering services as an extension of that. Because when you maintain the steel plant, power plant, there were uh, some projects that involved. Uh, you know, uh, the design of certain uh, uh, engineering components of the plant, which uh, which would have led us on to the engineering, drafting, prototyping, manufacturing, uh, you know, series of uh, series in a value chain. So we considered it perhaps uh, uh, appropriate to look at a slightly deeper involvement in engineering services to help our OEM business get deeper into the engineering segment itself. Uh, so we looked at a small acquisition of an engineering service company in Coimbatore. They also had a foundry that came with it, so they could do some prototyping. So they could do the entire range of engineering, drafting, prototyping, and manufacturing. But we found that uh, after we bought it about, let's say, within six months, it was apparent that uh, this is not a business that we knew. We were a services company. We were very good with, uh, with uh, identifying people, deploying them at a site, and maybe mm-hmm. doing field services for the, for the client. And uh, delivering on a scope of work that is uh, defined in terms of tasks to be done and outcomes to be created, not in terms of design, drafting, prototyping, and manufacturing. You know, so that uh, premise was completely wrong on which we had built that uh, uh, thesis of acquisition and uh, small acquisitions under ten crores totally. So what we decided was we gave it back to the promoter at uh, almost the purchase price, and um, we walked away from that. So that was one that uh, uh, that uh, you know didn't really work. Another acquisition that uh, proved to be uh, you know uh, I wouldn't say unsuccessful, but came up with some surprises was our uh, project to, was our decision to be in a smart city project in Ahmedabad. We were we were maintaining buildings. We were building mechanical equipment. We were building IT computer IT equipment, networks, computers, etc. All of this go into what is known as a smart city. And India was opening out 100 smart cities about four years ago. We had a uh, big program that the government had launched. So the holy grail and actually asset maintenance was actually maintaining smart cities, not just not these small buildings as they came. And we were ambitious. We wanted to be in that space because that was the next frontier of asset maintenance because it encompasses all of these things, you know, buildings, mechanical and electrical components, uh, control centers, uh, IT equipment, and finally, you know, um, citizens, citizen services, as they would say. Uh, so we bid for a number of these projects, and we we uh, figured out that we were usually L4, L5. We were never L1. Government projects are always given to L1. And in Ahmedabad, there was this project that was given out to a company called Trimax. Uh, they, we could never beat them in the bidding process, but uh, after the bid was given to them, um, uh, people reached out to us and told us that... Uh, um, you know, you you were technically the most qualified company for this project, but you're not able to get it. You were not able to get it because you're not L1. This company is not able to uh, complete the project. Would you like? Would Would you guys now like to step in and do this project and complete it and take it on? So we mm-hmm. said, okay. We went ahead. We assumed the role of the promoter of this. We drew up a JV between Trimax and us. We owned uh, 51. They owned 49. Put in the money. Got the project 90% done. The parent Trimax goes bust because they had difficulties uh, in returning loans that they'd taken for a previous business. As a result of that, the monies that was due to us from the government 
into this project were held up because if they went out of this company it would have uh, if to be taken out of this company it would have gone naturally into an escrow account and from there it would have gone into uh, the banks that were lenders to the principal trimax so hmm. we went 200 crores but we and we were unable to get the money from the government so we had to then further on go buy the 49% from the banks of trimax own 100% company and now the money has come to us so that's a resolved matter but the fact of the matter is that we we failed in our diligence to know that there was a future risk that was possible with uh, trimax to go bankrupt which could affect the cash flows emanating from this project itself that didn't figure in our uh, list of things so it set us back by about a year on collections for about 100 crores or so so that's again uh, and that also taught us another thing that our ability to handle government you know approvals uh, repeated approvals for the same project and uh, um, documentation everything else necessary in the government sector we were we were not really you know we didn't we were not uh, wound up for something like that so we decided not to be in government projects again so these are specific instances when we i think have failed in something that we set out to do and we were unable to finish to meet the finish line thanks for sharing these the way they were uh, ajit i mean it really helps final couple of questions uh, ajit you are in the business of you know managing people or you know at a scale that not many entrepreneurs uh, have even touched if you were to hand pick the biggest lessons or, or deepest insights uh, about working with people or managing people or or leadership how would you pick Three, two, three, four of them. So, uh, I think the essential element of uh, managing large organizations is design. You have to design it uh, correctly. You know, it can't be. There has to be linearity to the way organization designs are made. It should be simple. Just should be too many layers, and people should feel uh, in control of their jobs. Uh, I think what's kept. Uh, quest going as an organization and and its leadership intact is the fact that we have a very decentralized culture a lot of our leaders having been with me for a long while have a lot of freedom to do the things that they want to do on their job so it's for them the job is much greater than just a set of kras and principal accountabilities it's actually their life because you know their uh, uh, existence their thinking their uh, happiness their emotions revolve around what they do who they relate with and the level of freedom they have on the job a lot of the people who work for us today at quest don't come to work because of the salaries that we pay or about or because of uh, the stock options we give but because the liberty they get on their job the freedom and the uninterrupted ability to take their decisions that is i think the one thing that uh, that uh, is important in relationships to have this uh, decentralized system apart from a linear you know kind of a very uh, efficient organization design you also need to build the element of trust uh, you have to build an element of uh, uh, of uh, camaraderie of uh, of working together you know shoulder to shoulder on things where people believe that uh, responsibilities even though it'll come down to a certain task the results are uh, uh, are common derived products of uh, of a community working together at quest of people you know of people believing in the same goal so these are things that you have to work uh, consciously spend time communicating this and showing it by 
by own experience and showing by your own example that this is this is the way that life should be led and this is what this is the glue that keeps organizations together you can see it in uh, many founder led organizations that have become so successful you know infosys as another example where you had four or five founders terrific individuals they stayed right through to through the end and they scripted such a wonderful story and you can see in uh, other family run companies also where they've had cousins involved to to ensure that they all you know stay together to take it through but this 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 is a common bond that keeps everybody together everybody has their space everybody has liberty the success and the failures of your enterprise are common results what do you look for when you're hiring someone ajit like if, when you are hiring someone who would report to you or or anyone for that matter uh, beyond the capabilities uh, of, of, of that the role requires hmm. what do you really look for so let me share a small anecdote here you know uh and i read this somewhere a long time ago that napoleon was actually looking to hire a few senior personnel for his army so his generals interviewed uh, a few of these uh, you know people and uh, brought them to napoleon and said he's a he's b he's c a has won this battle b has uh, had the strategy and c you know um organized so much uh, of logistics to ensure that the uh, the army won so everybody had different characteristics and uh, all of them had won different battles and led many charges etc at the end of this whole reasoning about who's good in what area etc uh, after silently listening to everybody's uh, you know story about an assessment about each of the uh, people put up napoleon turned around and asked these generals one question i agree to all of the things that you've said but who of them is lucky <laughs> you know so sometimes this all doesn't just come down to which battle you won or how much uh, provisions you had in, in store for the next uh, uh, you know battle that you had to fight it's also about who got lucky in life so i think you have to go back in in one thing i look for in people is in the last 5 years of their work life not as much 20 years ago what have they done in the last 5 years you know what is their uh, uh, what is their time and tide of today you know where is it carrying them and have they had some uh, have they had some successes what is the momentum they have in their life sometimes i see senior management personnel come with uh, cvs that have won this award in 19 uh, in 1999 in 2003 2005 but towards 2015 2019 there's nothing showing up you know so you have to see in the recency of things where they stand the second thing is consistency uh, you know uh, job hopping is not at all a good sign so i like to see some people who've gone through one or two cycles of economic uh, uh, ups and downs within the same job so which means they've handled the high tide and the low tide with equanimity and that's i think a great sign the third thing is that uh, you need people who actually know the smell of money you know whether you're hiring for uh, for human resources or whether you're hiring for uh, procurement or for operations or finance you need across the board people who know the smell of money by the smell of money i mean they should know the value of money the importance of making it the how critical it is to enhance margins and how do you reduce dso you know things that you don't have to teach them every day in life and once you get people who who know the smell of money they will know why certain decisions are taken in some in in a certain direction and won't attach a color to it that uh, you don't see yourself so uh these are some of the things that i look for in people while we hire them final question ajit i mean <laughs> i taken a lot of your time uh what what is in you know what is there for you i mean what are you really seeking uh, you have been entrepreneur you 
built an organization with 400,000 people. Uh, what do you seek? And uh, I'm asking this question, you know, there are different lenses to look at it. Uh, some entrepreneurs look at it through the lens of exit or, or an outcome. Uh, others talk about this philosophical joy of being an entrepreneur, or the freedom of it, and, and, and so on. What does this mean to you? So um, I've always said that we're creating an institution at Quest, an institution that will that will create social impact, will create employment, and will create real return for shareholders. And that I think uh, is what is uh, you know living through our existence today in terms of uh, our priorities. Uh, I've enjoyed this process. You know, everything in, I've got in my life, I've got from Quest. Quest has been the reason why you know uh, it's a ra- it's a raison d'etre. It's also the reason why I've got. Whatever I've whatever reached in my life, so this is very dear to me. I'm not this is not a something that I, I look at exiting. But what gives me real joy here is actually watching my team grow. You know, watching people who have grown with me over so many years take senior responsibilities, and the way I can nudge them, push them, uh, you know, take higher levels of uh, uh, tasks, and to see them successful is actually a great moment of uh, joy for me. We've also got Suraj Morajeno, who's a CEO. There's a refreshing, there's a refreshing change in our company in terms of how we look at issues. Data being a primary driver for it, uh, cross-selling across businesses. Uh, how do we get more technology into the company? Uh, what is our extent of digital revenue today versus what we're doing in the past? Uh, what more value can we give to our customers at a lesser cost? So he's driving a lot of change. Uh, so I'm fascinated by this. I've built a company, taken it to let's say about a two billion dollar size. But now I can see somebody else giving it a different uh, tangent of growth and a level of value creation that didn't previously exist. So he's got a platform now. He's got people. He's got customers. And he's got a balance sheet that is uh, you know, very strong. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's lovely for me to work with him to see how this can now be expanded into another generation of growth uh, and into another set of areas which uh, we had not planned for in the past. Uh, having said that, I think we are all economic animals. Uh, what we get from the company, we will get, you know, and uh, time will decide what what should be that we should take from the company. But I'm looking at staying invested in contributing with the management team and uh, taking it to really the next level with Suraj and the team. Final, final question, Ajit. And also because we've been trying to have this conversation for long. So, yeah. you know, pardon me. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have also seen a lot of founders and entrepreneurs getting so obsessed with their ventures uh, that sometimes this whole entrepreneurial optimism uh, becomes uh, a very societal tendency, right? So what I'm trying to ask you, how do you deal with that? How do you balance entrepreneurial optimism with reality checks? How do you manage detachment in that sense, right? Uh, when, When you are creator of, of an enterprise? I think, you know, this is a great question because very often as an entrepreneur, you're blindsided by many things because you're, you're driven, you're consumed by your idea and you think you're actually God's gift to mankind and you have the solution to all of the problems here, you know. So uh, you're sometimes just going down a one-way street and wearing horses blinkers when you look at an issue. Uh, but I think that's where, you know, when you build an organization with uh, a decentralized culture, ind- independent thinking, is embedded into it because people uh, have a lot of independence in the way they run their jobs and they come back and there's pushback. And that, I think, has helps us take the right decisions. But uh, uh, 
the reality check that you need in your life actually comes from what else you do from outside the company and uh, some of the knocks that you get in your personal life some of your experiences and the things that you do outside the company actually uh, shows you and teaches you some of the you know lessons of life that you don't get ordinarily one of the things that uh, i've been involved with is actually uh, setting up healthcare facilities in underprivileged areas across india and uh, that for me is a very gratifying thing to do we look at small hospitals usually between 50 and let's say about 200 beds in remote far flung areas so we support now uh, through a foundation that's set up in my you know private foundation in my mother's name to uh, to support hospitals in places like chatrapur uh, nilambur uh, chungathara you know these are all uh, remote places now we're setting up one in tumkur which is outside bangalore we usually been 100 and 200 beds and uh, 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 when you when you go to these places and see the sort of uh, difficulties that some of the uh, you know marginalized people face there first of all you they, you're, you you know you you're so full of gratitude about uh, everything you've got and this in a sense rebalances your thinking and uh, ensures that you don't take any extravagant decisions in life one second is it also drives you to uh, build a system in which you know everybody wins something not just you know you're not sitting here to take all the cake and run away with the cream but you're able to give something to many people we've had a stock option program that's run for so many people we also want to build uh, a foundation we're building a foundation rather in quest right now which is supporting right now about 20000 students across 70 schools so giving a little back to society through that but the fact that you can engage with such activities actually help you rebalance your mind and to uh, and to actually neutralize some of the you know uh, not so not so right uh, ideas and you know initiatives that keep coming to you once in a way absolutely ajit thanks for this conversation this is like a master class so many life lessons so stay sane and uh, i am i i can see you are building something which will last so god speed thank you very much i much enjoyed this conversation as i enjoyed the many others that have done with you pankaj all the best thank you very much okay.